take a network break. Enjoy a virtual donut as we scamper through this week's tech news. Today, we're covering announcements from VMware Explorer. We check in on the supply chain, discuss whether Apple will support satellite internet on its forthcoming iPhone and more. We're sponsored today by Juniper Networks, Juniper SD-WAN, driven by Mist AI, which simplifies network deployments and operations. You can attend one of Juniper Networks' live AI-driven SD-WAN demos to discover game-changing insights and automation from client to cloud. Sign up at juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. That's juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. And stick around for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia about how you can develop custom apps using Nokia's SR Linux Network OS and Nokia's NetOps Development Kit, or NDK. With SR Linux and NDK, you can write apps to help simplify network operations. And we talk with Nokia about real-world apps that their customers have developed. Uh, Greg, let's jump right in. You have dropped in a story here about some space weather. We're going to do our surfing dog story up front. Yeah, <laughs> I have actually been watching the space weather for months now, hoping that one day we'll have a space weather event that we can bring to the show. <laughs> Did you know that? And here it is. Here it is. It's my <laughs> chance to shine. Months of <laughs> months of patient effort, and it's so. This week's space weather report. Apparently, there's actually been a major solar event. Uh, in the sun, and they call it Sunspot AR3089, which is actually facing towards the Earth, which is now actually developed into a Delta-class magnetic field, which means that it's built up enough energy to potentially release X-class solar flares. So what does that mean? That means if it actually happens that it does actually release an X-class solar flares, there's actually a significant risk of damage to infrastructure. So what we're saying here is that a flux of electromagnetic energy via is released from the sun in an X-class flare, then that will create a geomagnetic storm if it hits the Earth, if it happens in such a way that it hits the Earth. But right now, the hole that's in the sun that can develop to de to issue an X-class flare, um, and that could then basically all copper uh, electrical powered electrical grids are all at risk. And, you know, the last one was many years ago, about 100 years ago, it actually blew out power lines and telegraph lines right the way around the world. And it took the world something like five years to rebuild that infrastructure, just in case you didn't know. I believe that was called the Carrington event, yes? That's right. It was. Um, so this is a, still regarded as a low risk event. They're saying it's 5% chance of developing into an X-class flare. But I just thought that here's one <laughs> thing for networking engineers to worry about, space weather. <laughs> If you didn't have enough general anxiety on your plate, here's a helping of solar flares. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they Shutting go. down electricity grids, uh, killing your networks, all yep. that good stuff. Popping yes, all the routers, blowing up the power supply to your routers and the WAN, <laughs> and the, all your offices are down. The world pocket, you know, is the zombie apocalypse is sort of built around this type of nightmare. It it's sure unlikely, is. as you said. But, yeah. All right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got that out of the way. It makes the rest of the show feel kind of useless yes. if, uh, you know, there is no power anymore. Yes, but if you're listening to this, then it's a fair chance we've survived. That's right. <laughs> it's actually scheduled to Here's arrive to <laughs> on Sunday, the 4th of September. It is Friday, okay. the 2nd of September, but there you go. <laughs> and we will publish on Tuesday, the 6th of September. Yes, so if you do hear this, then we're okay. We made it. Very good. All right. <laughs> something to look forward to. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I guess in slightly less exciting news, uh, VMware had its VMware Explore conference uh, last week. The company rolled out a bunch of announcements. We've got some highlights. Uh, I'm going to start with VMware Aria. I think it's a pretty ambitious announcement out of VMware. It's essentially a multi-cloud management platform. Enterprises are struggling to manage workloads and policies across their disparate public clouds. So VMware Aria is basically proposing to be a dashboard of dashboards 
kind of sit across all the silos of AWS, Azure, and Google, sucks in your data into from your cloud deployments via APIs and essentially gives you a single management platform to manage, quote, cost, performance, configuration, and delivery of infrastructure and cloud native applications, end quote. That's according to a company press release. Yeah. So VMware Aria is a return to, uh, what do I want to say, 2012 when public cloud became a thing. And all of the incumbent vendors said, yeah, yeah, we'll just manage it from here. You know, we'll, we'll have your on-prem. And remember, multi-cloud management went through a fashion for a while, and then it mm-hmm. faded out as they realized that it was actually going to be quite difficult. And now all of a sudden it's back. Have you know? It's like, uh, <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, these companies have been reacting to off-prem cloud for quite some time. And we've seen Cisco have a go. We've seen HPE have a go. We've seen lots of companies come up and say, I'm going to manage the off-prem cloud, but not the on-prem We've seen the off-prem clouds try and find ways to manage both their on-prem. So AWS tries to manage your on-prem data center. Azure's tried to bridge the two by saying, we've got tools to manage your on-prem. So I like to think that VMware Aria is, you know, a me too thing. That's how I see it. Uh, However, I do believe that VMware is probably better place to make it work or make it stick this time. They've had over a decade now of developing their product putting their product into the public cloud. And maybe this time, cloud management, as in off-prem, on-prem, multi-cloud, like whether it's Google, AWS, whatever, and they're going to be able to manage VMware's infrastructure on someone else's cloud or manage other people's clouds natively and try and weld them all together. I think VMware more likely is going to be successful at this than anybody else. What do you think? I think two things. One, I think this is a road that VMware had to take because they saw the writing Mm. on the wall that net new application development is happening in the public cloud and it's not happening on VMware products despite, you know, all their efforts around Tanzu and stuff to rope containers into uh, the vSphere environment. So they realize, you know, instead of trying to beat cloud at its own game, uh, let's just be the manager of the cloud instead, which I think is a a smart pivot for them to actually Mm. still provide value. Also, it's serving a need that their enterprise customers have, that there are a lot of headaches that come with trying to manage multiple public clouds. Things start to sprawl. And so VMware has those enterprise contacts. They can say, hey, we've got a product for you. Um, So yeah, I think it's the right move for VMware, whether they can actually pull it off because it sounds immensely complicated uh, having to essentially tie three massive giant public clouds together into one sort of dashboard that's easy to consume for your customers. And when you start to dig into the details, you see just how many parts and pieces there are for VMware to manage. Yeah, I do think, I don't, not necessarily certain that ARIA will be long-term successful. What they're trying to say is that developers need to be able to call one set of APIs. And the way that most developers solve that is they say, we're going to host this app on this infrastructure. And that might be, you know, VMware on AWS or VMware on Azure. And they write to those APIs to instantiate and to manage and to monitor. They don't suddenly say, I'm going to deploy this app across five clouds. I'm not convinced that that's actually a long-term future or at least not for another decade. I don't think we're actually there where people will say, you know, I don't believe most enterprises are going to write apps. I believe that only a few enterprises will do app development. And in general, they'll be consuming SaaS services for a lot of stuff rather than, you know, the the, the road that's been paved with Salesforce and, you know, uh, Snowflake for data anal- analytics and things like that and buying um, visibility tooling like uh, Cisco's, uh, you know, App Dynamics and things like that. Mm-hmm. They're all mm-hmm. services. They're not on-prem. You don't need to manage those in, you know, from an API. The question is how much infrastructure does VMware want to manage? And, like, compare this to HP GreenLake, which says 
yeah, we'll give you the same thing. We'll deliver it on prem. You know, so maybe they make a decision. This app's here. This app's here. Why would I suddenly put VMware Aria in the middle of that? Does you know it has to add value, not take value away? If that makes sense. Sure, and I think VMware's response to that would be, well, we are adding value by giving you, you know, kind of a, a manager of managers in that instead of having to go into your AWS silo to figure out what's going on and check your costs. And then the Azure and then the Google, mm -hmm. you come here, you get a nice pretty picture of everything that you're doing. And then as you need to roll out and deploy new stuff, you go into the individual cloud capabilities. Um, the the other history thing says is, not likely yes, to ahead. win, right? Keep in mind that there's been vCloud Director. <laughs> Then you've had vRealize, you've had vRealize Automation, you've had, you know, all of the tools that uh, VMware has brought to market over the years, and none of them have really been a success. Customers generally report a lot of pain. So if VMware wants to do that, it has to really pick up its game. Well, you did sort of uh, prep me for the next part of this, which is that part of this ARIA is just a rebranding of existing VMware solutions, including vRealize Operations and vRealize Automation. They are going to roll out new features and capabilities as well but they're just pulling it all in under one umbrella now of ARIA. Yeah, so, you know, things, simple things like logs. Okay, you're going to have ARIA operations for logs. Fine. And today that's vRealize Insight, right? Uh, Log Insight right. or something like that, okay? Right. Um, well, great. Now, are you saying that you're going to pull the logs from AWS and Google Cloud and Azure and my VMware on AWS and my VMware on Google and my on-prem all into one logging tool? Do I really want to do that? And, and is the pain of deploying an infrastructure to do all that worthwhile or am I better? Do you see what I'm saying? It, it has to be doing something. It's not, it can't just do the minimum because the pain threshold right. of managing a manager is, is something that we learned 30 <laughs> years ago, you know, especially in networking when we had those big fat HP OpenView type managers right. of managers that were, okay, yeah, right. yeah, you could send all the logs in, but it was horrible. You know, the platform was awful and it didn't do anything because it was so general. So that's the weakness I, in the strategy. Right. I did get flashes of that, that that just massive complexity of something like an, an old school OpenView uh, or the others that were like it. Um, and I think uh, VMware recognizes that. And so one of the things they're trying to do is say, we'll keep data you know, where it's natively stored and we're just going to essentially put an API layer over everything and deliver the information to you via a SaaS console. So you don't even have to worry about throwing up all of the infrastructure to run this. We'll deliver it to you as a service, leveraging the APIs that are yeah. already available from AWS, Azure, and Google. Yeah. So I think it's not entirely like having to deploy OpenView, which you had to set up and stand up yourself and manage yourself as opposed to a SaaS service, yeah. which this is. But equally, what's underneath this manager is far more complicated than you know, right. some devices running SNMP, you know? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, and it's That's got the a thing. That's what I, yeah. I feel like this is a real ambitious move by VMware to stay relevant in yeah. a multi-cloud environment where they see their business model being eroded by public cloud. So yeah, big risk, potentially big payoff, uh, but it's really up to VMware to execute. Yeah, it does. It just feels like, you know, sure, this is natural. And this this actually might be one of these tools that is just a sales pitch. We've got all the things and we can give you all the things, but people actually end up just buying vSphere, vSAN, you know, and, and NSX and calling it done. You know, potentially, it, you know, yes. it's a bit like the, you know, the sports car, the concept car that the venue, uh, the companies put out every now and then. And it's, it's a real car, sort of, but they're not going to manufacture it. It's just there to show off at a conference, you know. Well, the other thing is, and I uh, raised this issue in a blog that I wrote about this, is that the big shadow over all this is uh, Broadcom. Uh, mm. VMware is be in the process of being acquired. 
Uh, my take is that Broadcom isn't really interested in VMware swinging for the fences with ambitious new projects. They just mm -hmm. want to squeeze as much money out of the existing portfolio as they can. So this might be a fun little toy for VMware to play with until the acquisition comes, you know, closes and point. then Broadcom will be like, eh, you know, well, that is a great point because if, you know, Broadcom has stated they're going to drive the company from 3.5 to nearly 12 billion in revenue, more than 12 billion. They want 13 billion annual revenue out of the company. Um, mm -hmm. So that means they're going to have to grow the company by 30% and they're also going to have to increase the profit margin from 35% to 65%, which is what yeah. Broadcom does. That's that's gross margin. Um, there's, you know, if you're throwing a lot of money into product development like this and then you have to go out and sell it to customers, that's all going to eat into the bottom line. Um, right. And then Broadcom is ruthless about getting the financial results. Financial results come first at Broadcom and customers come second. So is my general assumption with Broadcom, which is fine. They can run their business any way they like, and they've sure, been very sure. successful. Customers have been very happy with that business model, right? Symantec continues. Right. They've been selling their CIA products in the mainframe industry. <laughs> they've been selling chips to Apple and silicon to, you know, to switch venue. It's not a criticism. It's the way they run their business, and we need to uh, live in that world and recognize it for what it is. So. That's the thing. Based on Broadcom's previous software acquisitions, they were looking for rent extraction, not uh, you know exciting <laughs> new development. Uh, maybe they're changing that idea and that strategy with the VMware acquisition. Uh, so I guess we'll see what happens with Aria. You know, six, mm. nine, uh, twelve months from now. But it is a big. <clears throat> I don't think you'd want to buy this. I wouldn't be rushing in to bite this off. I don't think I'd be very. That's great. We'll put it on our roadmap and uh, wait patiently to see some real deliverables and some. Some victims first. I mean, uh, early adopters. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Uh, links in the show notes if you want more. We'll move on to some of the other announcements. Uh, VMware is rolling out vSphere 8. I think the big news for us is that vSphere is going to support DPUs. Yeah, you know, uh, I am big on DPUs. I think it's a really significant, probably the only innovation we'll see in this decade. I think it's going to be DPUs. So the, the innovation we saw, like, if you want to call it in inverted commas, SD-WAN. And then we saw the transition in the data center around S software operated LANs, you know, and then the move to virtual switching away from physical switching and services increasingly. I think the only one we'll see for 2023 is the arrival of DPUs. So the fact that the CPU is no longer the focus and vSphere is now able to support DPUs. Uh, and particularly what they're doing is saying this is going to free up the, the vSphere people really Actually, it's clear that most of the VP, the vSphere people don't understand what a DPU is when you look at the videos and watch the presentations. I don't know if you how if you've got the same sense I of it. I've not but, seen them. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> but they're sort of saying it's going to support DPUs because we've been told to say this sort of stuff. So, um, <laughs> really, the DPUs is going to do two things for vSphere, and one is it's going to offload a lot of the networking, <coughs> and it'll also offload the storage. So, in this current release of vSphere eight, there's no mention in any of the videos that I saw that they're going to use the DPUs to accelerate the vSAN mm -hmm. software. My mm -hmm. guess is that's next. But really what I think here is where this works is that customers who are using vSphere and vSAN and then get NSX. And NSX, as we talked about, uh, which is what we're going to talk about next, is going to be really where NSX starts to use the DPU to do firewalls, load balances, and all that. We've talked about this before about, so right. that's where the fun's going to be. 
I mean, the whole, you know, NSX value proposition now is about having distributed security services right at the workload, uh, but you don't want to kill your CPU running security function. So you put it on a DPU, you get, mm. you know, micro segmentation, firewalling, load balancing, IPS, and so on uh, without killing the DPU. So yeah, that that's, I definitely see NSX wanting mm. to run wild on, the, on that platform. Yeah. And that doesn't, running NSX doesn't imply vCloud Director or Project uh, you know, VMware ARIA or, you know, all of those tools, you still can deploy just vSphere, vSAN, NSX and get all the functions that you want and, you know, run those three things in isolation. And I think that's where VMware short-term revenue is going to come from. All right. The uh, other thing that jumped out at me is uh, VMware's announcement of Project Northstar. This is another SaaS service. It provides centralized management of NSX networking and security capabilities in your private cloud and again across multiple public clouds. So there's that multi-cloud angle once more. The idea is that you have a single SaaS-based management platform for NSX so you can set and monitor and manage your NSX networking and security policies across all of the public clouds you might be in. Yeah. So the key thing here is that I think what VMware is doing is they're saying if you want to use DPUs or SmartNICs, you have to have Nullstar to manage it. Right? It's kind of like- <laughs> Well, I don't know about that because yeah. this, is, this is for public cloud and I don't know that you can run- software on a DPU in the public cloud. You could do it on-prem. No, you can. Yeah, they actually have the can. capability to do that. Okay. Some of them do at least. Well, some of the some of the DPUs have enclaves, which allow you to, you know, call down into the code and run them. Uh, mm. But we'll see how it works out. I'm not, it wasn't exactly clear. Some of this is fairly aspirational. Um, <laughs> the pitch around Project Northstar <gasps> is that uh, some of the networking functions or the average for networking functions is 15% of CPU time is allocated to networking IO right. processing. And if you've got 128 core CPU, 128 CPUs, then all of a sudden you're losing, you know, quite a lot of horsepower. If you can delegate that down to a, in the same way that in graphics you do to, to GPU or for AI to a TPU and release the CPU to do CPU things, then you can start to scale out. You can actually massively improve the performance. And then, of course, NSX is going to be very happy because then they can bring their, make more, uh, be more successful because the processing power is there to do internal firewalls, service meshing inside of Townsu, uh, ADCs, load balancing, WAFs, firewall projects, inspection. You know, they can do much more with flow logs. You can eject a lot of flow logs. You can start to do uh, deep packet inspection on those things over time. You can get really detailed observability. And even, of course, things like uh, VPN, uh, routing information, like participate in any VPN overlay if you're into torturing yourself. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, so one more thing on that. Uh, this Project Northstar announcement uh, requires that you're using VMware Cloud in whatever public cloud you're running. And VMware Cloud, for those who don't know, essentially lets you run a vSphere environment on rented public cloud infrastructure. Uh, the Project Northstar capabilities available when this rolls out are network detection and response, load balancing, web app firewalling, uh, and a few other features. It's right now only available as a technology preview, uh, but we'll have a link in the show mm. notes uh, to the press release where there's a link at the bottom where you can sign up if you want to be part of a future beta release. Yeah. Now, the interesting part about this is that they're also talking about the same features and functions that you get in DPUs are also being added to VeloCloud or to SASE. So you're going to see some convergence over time between the SASE offering at the edge where a lot of the NSX stuff is now going to integrate. So we speculated you know, over the last two years that eventually all of this merges. There's no reason for the data center like the NSX to be separate from the VeloCloud SASE stuff. It should all just be one. And we're starting to see some signs here in the announcement. You have to poke them a little bit and look for it. It's not like, oh, yes, we're definitely doing it. But I'm looking at one slide here, which says, you know, VMware Cloud Web Security Enhancements. 
Secure SASE Edge, which is exactly the same slide as Project Northstar threw up for user declared connectivity. So mm, I think, uh -huh. you know, we're starting to see that convergence where SASE starts to become of a universal network fabric. There's only one network. There's not a WAN, a data center, a campus, if you know what I'm Yes. Uh, one more thing, and Greg, this is a, a, an issue you're bringing up. You're, you're hearing rumors that VMware is starting to deliberately slow sales again in uh, anticipation of the Broadcom wrap-up. That's it. This is an interesting one. Uh, this is an article on Business Insider, and they have you know published a bit of an, a scoop, if you like, or a bit of a you know a bit of an, uh, an inside run. Uh, and they're saying that VMware is deliberately slowing down sales deals and vetoing customer deals as the Broadcom acquisition looms. And inter salespeople inside of VMware are really annoyed because customers are signing up to these big licensing agreements and the company's saying no. Now, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it says here, the slowdown and prolonged reviews have led to some deals being pulled entirely. Several sales employees told Insider that deals with licensing terms longer than five years are being rejected outright. And another longtime sales executive told Insider that the review was meant basically have to go back and tell the customer, we actually can't accept this order. That is- Wow. Yeah, right? So, you know, here's another quote. Every single customer is coming to the table right now, says a sales executive in VM. There's a lot of fear from customers, the executive said, adding, I don't know if these deals are going to close, but I do know these customers are actually engaging VMware at three times the clip they normally do. So what's happening here? Well- I believe that we know that VMware is going to be acquired by Broadcom within the next 12 months, and it's widely expected that Broadcom will increase price significantly post-acquisition. It's not just us. I think basically every analyst firm has been telling customers, if you can get your deals in with VMware, I think we said the same thing when Broadcom announced the deal, didn't we, on the show? Get in there Probably, and get, yep. your, you know, get your long-term licenses in. And so, you know, everybody, we know that, you know, Avago, well, oh, sorry, Broadcom was going to... Um, drive profits up from 3.5 billion to 13 billion. It was clear what Vorcom said in their acquisition statement. So there's two sides to this. I think first of all, you've got to think about uh, the SEC, the US government, and its financial duties. The VMware must run the business as normal before an acquisition. It can't suddenly change, can't cut headcount by 30 percent, or make any material changes to the business during an acquisition process. Mm. If customers are rushing in and placing orders at a significantly larger volume than normal. VMware may feel that they have to reject those because that would deviate their business, would spike the revenue, and they could end up losing the deal or being running afoul of SEC. Um, huh. But it also could be that VMware's new new owner, obviously Broadcom, is waiting to get those extra profit, profits and might be applying pressure to actually stop these deals, which would lock them out of getting price rises to some part of the base before they get ownership. I mean, that would be definitely the cynical take. If Broadcom's mm. looking to get drive revenue as quickly as possible, then you don't want new, you don't want customer renewals locking in the low price today for five years. <laughs> well, if I'm a customer, I do. And if you're really I mean, a customer. Yeah, if you're a customer, absolutely yeah. you do. <laughs> and so yeah. here's the challenge for VMware executives. If you are really focused on the customer, don't do this, right? Because you, right. I will point out that <laughs> Nutanix has done, just had its best quarter ever. And, you know, custom people are switching to Nutanix. It's fairly clear that, uh, you know, if you're not willing to keep them happy, customers will walk. They literally had their share spike from something in the order of $18 to $22 this week because their earnings, you know, absolutely shut up. That might be because they're spending a lot of money on marketing, but still. And it was a week ago that VMware announced that their subscription revenue went up 22% year on year. Okay? So... There is definitely evidence that this is actually true, that their revenue is spiking around the subscription, long-term licensing agreements, and that 
you know, if they're being held back and there's a lot of evidence in this piece, then you're going to have some unhappy customers, I think, and some unhappy salespeople who might decide that there's time to leave. I mean, seriously, if you're counting on that kind of, you know, year-end sales bonus uh, mm. as part of your compensation, then to have that shut down, I would be furious. Well, it'd be worse than that because you would actually have an order and then it goes into <laughs> deal review and then the company rejects it. So you've done all the work, <laughs> allocated the time and resources to putting a pricing together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I could. I, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. It's terrible. All right. Well, that link is in the show notes. If you want to check it out, we're going to take a quick pause here from our sponsor, Juniper SD-WAN. Juniper SD-WAN, driven by Mist AI, simplifies network deployments and operations. It's a highly scalable solution with intuitive management and enhanced visibility into end user experience so IT users can save time getting their networks deployed and repairing network issues faster than ever before. And speaking of experience, Juniper leaves that experience is the new uptime. Juniper provides superior user experience with a session-oriented architecture that can reduce latency by up to 60%. Juniper users experience noticeable improvements to application performance and critical voice and video calls that go uninterrupted. Finally, the Juniper solution features breakthrough economics. Thanks to a unique tunnel-free architecture, customers can expect up to 75% reduction in head-end infrastructure costs and up to 50% reduction in bandwidth costs. You can attend one of Juniper Network's live AI-driven SD-WAN demos to see for yourself the game-changing insights and automation you get from client to cloud. You can see how unprecedented session-based visibility and fine-grained application where session smart routing brings huge benefits. Sign up for one of these demos at juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. That's juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. And we thank Juniper for being a sponsor. Uh, Back to the news. Palo Alto Networks is reminding customers to fix a known configuration vulnerability in some of its firewall platforms as the company has determined the vulnerability was exploited as part of a DDoS attack on a service provider. Yeah, so basically there's some sort of vulnerability in the uh, Palo Alto firewalls, and if you send a certain type of packet to it, it then uh, means that the Palos become a UDP amplifier of significant size. And the amplification factors that it creates can be huge. In fact, the uh, CVE actually says we find even an infinite amplification. There are some hosts that we can send a couple of packets, and in response they seem to send to us indefinitely. Wow. So, uh, yeah. Do other, so basically, if I send a packet to your Palo and it's vulnerable to this CVE, you could actually saturate your entire outbound bandwidth just because the box is infinitely transmitting. Yeah. Get to work. So the vulnerability exists in multiple versions of the Palo Alto Network's firewall less from versions 8.1 to 10.2. Uh, it affects hardware, virtual, and container-based firewalls. Apparently, the cloud-based firewall has already been fixed, so no worries there. Uh, Palo Alto says it's a misconfiguration issue, so it doesn't otherwise affect the operation or security of the firewall. But yeah, you do want to get that fixed. Mm-hmm. Sure do. <laughs> Sounds bad anyway. Yeah. Uh, all right. We've got a few notes on supply chain issues. I think the biggest news here is that the U.S. government has ordered NVIDIA to stop exporting two of its AI computing chips to China, a move NVIDIA says could cost the company up to $400 million in sales that have already been booked. Uh, the U.S. is justifying the ban by saying chips could be diverted for use by the Chinese military. Well, of course, you can justify it by that, but it's also good. You know, Chinese business has an AI and is using it to conduct business offshore. Uh, so it's also a trade and a geopolitical issue as well, you know, not just a military yes. issue. Right. Yes. It's but nobody's saying that out loud. So let's just say that out loud. Uh, I think the the interesting thing here is that that also means more chips for everybody else. If NVIDIA can't ship those chips to China, then they come into the Western market. And in theory, that reduces some of the demand for certain types of AIs. This did lead to a really significant drop in the share prices for all chip makers, Uh, It generally led down a significant, I think it was like a 15% or 20% drop in the chip makers. 
um, partly because of this, because they're now seeing that um, the US government and to an extent the European government, so the Western world generally is saying we shouldn't be exporting products to China that can be used against us. That's probably a reaction to the Ukraine-Russia war, where Russia is using a lot of products, you know, a lot of military hardware and uh, tools to be able to conduct its uh, unprovoked war in the Ukraine um, using Western products. And they're starting to realize that China has made a lot of noises and been aggression. We talked about this over the last six to eight weeks. Um, the second thing I wanted to note here is that this is just one of a series of things that happened in the supply chain. Demand for shipping via ships, as in shipping via shipping as a general thing, um, <laughs> has slowed down and forward freight rates are now returning to reasonable levels. So what's actually happening is the forward demand or the forward booking for capacity in containers and ships going across the world has actually now dropped. There's actually capacity and the pricing for booking container space is now realistic. So that suggests that there's less freight moving around. Now, some of that is due to uh, slowdowns in China. There's been heat waves. There's a lack of water in the Yangtze. Uh, and also due to the way the Chinese government approaches COVID, as soon as it's detected, right. they lock down entire towns. And so productivity would be affected. But if you've got factories with electricity and water shortages and society with electricity and water shortages and lockdowns, then production's also slowing. So maybe there's some of that. But also many of the chip makers, TSMC, you know, all those types of things are saying that future orders are actually slowing down. So towards the end of 2023, there's no um, continued growth in orders. There's actually slowed down. And they're making various statements of excess inventory due to pre-orders. So one of the things we speculated about at the start of the supply chain crisis is that if I was an IT vendor, I might order in bulk to get it all right. in. And now I've yep. got a warehouse or I've got orders sitting in the pipeline that I now have to sell because I can't cancel them, can I? Right. So right. Uh, obviously that's one thing. The pre-orders may actually have been bumped up to make sure that they had a capacity of you know, stock eventually. We're also seeing reduced demand due to inflation in the US and the EU. There's the war in Ukraine, of course. And then we're also seeing tensions between China and Taiwan, which is leading to geopolitical issues. So take your pick of any or all of those. <laughs> which one do you like? But basically the bottom line is the production capacity for chips is actually easing going into next year. So that's something to look forward to at least. Yep. Uh, also wondering if this is going to affect uh, sort of the just-in-time delivery model, uh, which is one of the reasons we sort of got into this crunch at the time, because there was no mm. uh, excess product sitting in warehouses because it was cheaper to just get it uh, on a ship uh, and express it. Mm. Uh, and now uh, curious if companies are going to decide to tweak that model. Yeah, it'd be interesting because in part, you want the just-in-time delivery so that you can iterate your products quicker. You don't mm -hmm. want to have to order and then, you know, sit on a year's worth of stock or two years, and if all of a sudden a new model comes out, well, you don't ship it, right? Because you're – right. and if you're on a just-in-time, you can actually spin your hardware cycle a lot faster because you don't have to get rid of inventory or you don't have to do inventory write-downs. But the other side is is that your supply chain becomes weak. So it's interesting to speculate, will we see a return to you know, holding some stock in case of supply chain shocks, or do people return to just-in-time partly because they're just – tight-fisted with money and willing to take the risk that the supply chain can collapse. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. Right. Mm. Well, all right. Uh, moving on. Last week, we talked about a partnership between T-Mobile and Starlink for T-Mobile phones to someday be able to get internet service from Starlink satellites. Uh, there are now reports that Apple's forthcoming iPhone 14 may include the ability to use satellite internet for emergency purposes. Um, apparently, the hardware issues have been sorted, but Apple hasn't been able to ink a deal with carriers to make this connectivity happen. Yeah, there's two analysts, uh, Quo and Bloom, uh, Mark Gurman, and both of them have agreed that iPhone has satellite connectivity in the hardware today. 
uh, I, and certainly the iPhone 14, which is rumored to come next week. Uh, there's an Apple event on Tuesday, the 7th of September. So maybe, you, you know, we'll hear more. Some people are saying the hardware is already in the iPhone 13. Uh, we, you know, we'll see. But I think the main thing here is that this idea of doing mobile phone to a satellite for some level of service is firming up. And if it's not on your radar for corporate use, uh, maybe you should just add it to your list of things to be on the lookout for. We'll try and keep you up to date. Um, and if you're going to watch the Apple event next week, because this might be relevant to your, your business, it'd be interesting to see how that works. But it's mostly about this low bandwidth messaging and maybe a voice calls. But then again, we'll see how it works out. I think Apple has stolen several years advance here. They've partnered with existing telcos, uh, existing satellite providers, and I suspect, and we'll have to wait and see, but I expect they're going to be able to deploy it almost immediately rather than just announce it as coming in the future. Mm-hmm. Could be Could wrong. Be. Could yeah. be wrong. I guess we'll find out uh, on the Yeah, we're not going to put that one on the spreadsheet. That's just not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> All right, uh, our last story for the day. Uh, three former American employees of a security company called Dark Matter have been barred from engaging in arms exports. That's according to the register. The employees who had worked for the NSA before joining the security company, uh, Dark Matter, that was based in the United Arab Emirates, had previously been charged with hacking into devices owned by American citizens and spying on American citizens, journalists, and politicians on behalf of the UAE government. So this is a fallout from an ongoing story that we've been looking at. Yeah, these people were quite egregious. They were NSA experts or employees of the NSA became known as, you know, that sort of attack internal or secret service hacker. The UAE set up a cyber team at the UAE government. And then, of course, these people's defense was, oh, I'm just doing my job. That doesn't cut it, right? Uh, Well, they left the NSA and then they went and got jobs in the security company that was actually working for the United Arab Emirates government. And so they were doing lots of, yeah. Yeah. So this is straight up. And the UAE was taking the tools that these people were making and using them against everybody, including the US government. And so uh, I think even (laughs) one of the US government did really, didn't really like. No. So they have kind of thing. So the outcome is that they've now had to cough up 1.6 million uh, in fines as a group cooperate fully with the U.S. government, give up all foreign and U.S. security clearances and never seek them again and accept restrictions on future employment. Um, I guess the, I guess the actual thing here is that these people will obviously never get a security clearance again. And considering that that is your intended security career, you're probably not going to be able to work with too many uh, security companies going forward because they can't put you on staff because right. you're effectively blackballed, right? Right. So, yep. and if you're a civilian company who, who does a simple Google search, you're going to know who these people were. They're going to be really stuck for work in the future. So, the moral here is um, the defense of it's. I was just doing my job is not a defense. You you have to pick moral employers, and it's your responsibility to to take work on a moral basis. I think. Yeah, definitely the lesson for me. Yeah, don't. Yeah. <laughs> consequences. <laughs> yeah. Don't. <laughs> Yeah. If you work for yeah. the NSA, yes, you're working for the good guys. If you're working for the UAE government, you're hard to see you're working for a good guys. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think some of the things that the NSA gets up to, they operate in very gray areas. So mm. you may have some moral flexibility anyway that would allow you to say, hey, I guess I'll go work for this quote unquote security company where I happen to be spying on my fellow American citizens. But yeah. it's just a job because I kind of did the same thing at the NSA. So yeah. what's the yeah. difference? Uh, but yes, uh, keep that in mind that it could blow back in your face pretty yep. bad. Sucks to be them. <laughs> 
All right, that wraps up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversations with Nokia. We're talking about developing custom apps to run on Nokia's SR Linux Network OS. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk with sponsor Nokia about its SR Linux Network OS, and more specifically, because SR Linux is open, customers can write homegrown apps that solve specific problems using that NOS. Is this a good idea? Do customers actually do this? Here to discuss is John Lundstrom. He is Director of Web Scale Business Development at Nokia. John, welcome to the podcast. So vendors do like to talk about openness, but is an open NOS something that customers actually want? Are they taking advantage of it? Yeah, surprisingly, they are actually really in need of more flexibility and control of the NOS uh, to fit their unique needs. But actually making that easy to do is paramount. Unfortunately, legacy NOSes aren't architected for this. So what about mm-hmm. SR Linux then uh, enables this quote unquote openness mm-hmm. or flexibility? When Nokia designed the architecture of SR Linux, a key goal was actually to enable extensibility. That meant starting with standard Linux, you know, our proven protocol stack from SROS, Yang models for everything, and some modern management interfaces like GNMI and and gRPC. And and that's not necessarily new. And and you know, other vendors are out there doing similar things. But on top of that, we actually built infrastructure which allows other applications to tie into our system. So we're using things like standard protocol. Uh, buffers or protobuffs to communicate between all of our own applications, but anything else that would be running on also as a microservice. You're actually going to run apps in the network device and they're going to do something for you. Now, quite often we've talked about this as being possible, but today we're going to talk more about what people have actually done. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to give you guys great examples of how our customers are actually leveraging this in their real environments. And that's not something that, uh, that really has been possible before now. So you're using protobufs, gRPC, GNMI, um, uh, Yang modeling. Do you also have some kind of development kit that folks take advantage of? Yeah, the NDK, we call it, you know, making sure that that was easy to use actually, you know, was kind of key. You know, I, I see actually similarities with how my kids have gravitated to things like Minecraft and Roblox, which are also very <laughs> highly flexible and very intuitive to kind of get started. So we kind of are taking a page from that. And we you know we built some onboard documentation for all the Yang models where absolutely everything must be defined in the box. And I think the other thing here is that Nokia Development Kit, NDK, I'm, I'm guessing that's what it is, but I bet money on it. But that's what it is, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the interesting part here is that you're putting a lot of effort into this. You're promoting it. You've been on the show several times and we've talked to you a few times over the last year or so about the idea of programmability in SR Linux and about the NDK and touch more. But this isn't just something that's, you know, like with a lot of other networking vendors, they just say, yeah, we've got an API ask us about it. But you're actually saying this is actually a key differentiator from your perspective. Yeah, customers want that flexibility to go in, but we have to make it easy to consume. So when you use things like protobufs, there's actually compilers out there for a variety of different programming languages. So operators don't have to go and Uh, learn whatever programming language our apps are built in. They can build them in their own language. That just makes it easier for them to interact with our system, to put those applications. And then we did things like added in lifecycle management of the apps. So whether it's our app, you know, could be BGP, could be LLDP, or whether it's somebody's third-party app that they've loaded on, they all have to have a Yang model. They all can use the northbound interfaces of GNMI and GRPC to control them. That, that makes it consumable now and, and really kind of opens up the possibilities. And I think also we've seen a maturity in terms of people saying using APIs 
to program instead of, you know, the move away from CLIs and the use of containers inside the SR Linux. There's a whole bunch of underlying activities. There's a whole um, approach to using developer-like tools or using the modern way to go forward than we've seen before. It took a long time though, didn't it? Yeah, it, it has. And, you know, that was, you know, kind of a key investment that we made up front. It's this infrastructure that then enables customers to, you know, really do what they need to or what they want to, depending on their particular business model needs. Hmm. Now, these apps, are are they homegrown or are they buying them from third parties or developing them by third parties or whatever? Actually, so we've been working with customers to help them build. Some of them have been built by customers themselves. And we actually intend to, of course, work with partners as well who may offer that as a mm-hmm. service to help customers build, uh, you know, different types of apps for different types of functions. So let's get into an example then, because I think that would really help make this more concrete. Do you have customer stories of folks who are building their own apps and then running them on this network OS? Yeah, absolutely. But maybe before we start, one of the more interesting things that we discovered while we were, you know, kind of, you know, pitching this and talking with customers about it is, although their engineering and architecture teams are very interested in the NDK and agent support, it's actually been the operational teams that have actually been driving the use of these features. They're the ones who are actually going to take advantage of, of what these apps can do. And I've kind of found that there's three different categories of customers out there that our agents are helping. There's those who don't want to change their model or operational model yet. There's those who want to, but need some help. And then there's those who are actually eager to change because their existing solutions are actually hindering their growth. Okay. And is that one of the examples we're going to talk about? A customer who's just like, I need to change my operational model right now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, let's, let's go through these. We have an example of a customer who, you know, doesn't really want to change their operational model. And it's really because of you know, they need to get a new solution into the network, but has to work into their existing op models in order for them to kind of meet their needs. So this was a customer who wanted to do or has existing solutions that do BGP control plane security. In this case, when the config changes and a new peer is added, an ACL is added to ensure that that communication can happen with that that far end remote uh, BGP peer. Well, that wasn't a capability to automate this uh, that was embedded within SR Linux. So we used an agent and worked with them to develop one which instantiates the ACL when it hears that there's a configuration change of adding a new peer. This saved time for the customer. They didn't have to wait for a new feature from us, but it also, and maybe more importantly, didn't force them into an immediate change to their operational model. Mm. So it simplified that that kind of transition mm-hmm. of a new technology into their environment. And I mean, in some ways that could be the most difficult thing for an organization is changing an operational model because that just comes, you know, people are very familiar with how they do things and getting them to change can be hard. So finding a way to build an app that actually fits into what they're currently doing can make a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and that's actually a great segue to the, to the next one. In this case, the customer was willing to change, but they had a concern about impacting their existing customers who are using a legacy technology. In this case, they had a static eVPN uh, VXLAN environment from, from their existing vendor, but they wanted to move to a more dynamic eVPN using BGP model that our SR Linux solution provided. Now, to interwork these, it wasn't easy. There was some control plane work would have had to been done on the legacy vendor, which they didn't want to do and would have taken a lot of time. But it also didn't make sense for Nokia to go and build support for some uh, legacy static EVPN feature sets. 
mm-hmm. the middle ground here was actually working with an agent on the network element that enabled this interworking. It actually, in this case, advertised the MAC addresses from the static side into the dynamic eVPN so that tunnels could automatically be created from dynamic endpoints on the uh, the SR Linux devices. Yeah, this is a great example of <laughs> yeah. the fact that it saved six months of work. <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually thinking that in the past they would have been, uh, you know put in a feature request and you and gone to bat for you know with the product manager asking you to add this to the to the product and you would have gone like i don't want to i just this is just a product that only one customer or a couple of customers wants and it makes sense that now they can say well and then and in, not have to wait six to 12 months for you know to get approval and then for it to go into development and then for it to have to come out in a version they can probably in a few months actually develop you know, an app that goes into a container that emulates this static eVPN functionality that you're talking about and get something working without having to go through all this other pain. Is that unreasonable or am I off the mark there? Six weeks. It took us six weeks to get this working <laughs> with this customer. Um, yeah. And yeah, they've uh, they've implemented that. And I would say that's a, a pretty good, you know, re- return on uh, on the investment for them yeah. instead of waiting for 12 months. Yeah, sure. or more for it to come out in the code. And I think the other thing here is that operations... We're seeing a shift. It used to be design and strategy got to make all the product decisions about how it looked and the design was done. And then it used to be put in and that was it. Operations just got what was thrown over the fence and they just had to keep it the same. This is a case where operations is actually now saying we need to change something and we can and we will and we do. And that's that's kind of like NetOps as I see it. Because the opportunity was there, because the product supported this, you can do this type of thing. Yeah, it was a bit of a perfect storm. We had built the architecture in SR Linux to support these third-party agents and the NDK, and it can be consumed very easily. So the you know the the barriers to for the operations teams to actually go and make these changes or build little apps uh, was you know the, that bar is pretty low now, and you know it's really opened up the possibilities for them to you know do things that either you know they do today and they want to do similar or Mm -hmm. to try new things kind of uh, important for them as they continue to grow and, and, and see, uh, see new challenges in their network environments. So of the three types of customers you've been working with, the third one I think we haven't covered yet is customers who are really looking, they're, they're champing at the bit to do something new. Yeah, we have a customer, uh, a very large customer who was uh, eager because they were being held back um, by the architecture that they had. They needed a variety of different agents and they've they've really leveraged a variety of different, you know, embedded functionality now in, uh, in SR Linux. So they started with distributed analytics. They had an existing a toolkit for their solution, which was pulling in a variety of different derived analytics into a northbound system, doing reporting, doing state monitoring, etc. Mm-hmm. The format that they were receiving that in from the, the the other devices in their network was not the same that we would have been sending it on our GNMI interface. So they put an agent onto our device, which actually just switches the format of what information they can <laughs> gather from us and sends it off to their northbound system. This eased the integration into that northbound down system significantly. So it's Essentially just doing some basic translation or reformatting. <laughs> it sounds simple, but when you now you know push it out, make it distributed out onto the actual network elements, you're saving more compute power back at wherever that northbound system would have had to do that translation itself as well. I'm guessing then this is an organization operating at significant scale where something like this could make an immediate difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They and then they, you know, extended that to to modeling things like 
config deviation. So they're actually checking and monitoring for the config deviation with uh, an agent that lives on the device. So whether somebody, you know, as part of a troubleshooting exercise was making a change to configuration, they know when that's happening. And this helps them avoid things like configuration drift. Uh They, at the scale that this customer is working at, consistency and uh you know and uh, of of configuration across all their devices is actually how they kind of live and breathe so that's that has been you know another agent for them has been been monitoring that and helps uh, helps maintain that for them so this is something they built custom to make sure that uh that they've got consistent configuration across a huge fleet of devices absolutely the third one is uh is helping them monitor for configuration variants when they are doing the installation process. So you can imagine boxes, big boxes, 288 Mm. ports getting deployed and all the cabling that has to be attached to them. They now have an agent that's running in SR Linux. When that box boots up, it goes and checks a master database, says, what ports should I have configured? What ports should those be connected to on far end devices? And it checks the the link state database on our uh, device to check what information is being advertised by the neighbors and and actually compares those to make sure that you know port A is connected to port B the way it should be. And uh, you know this is you know significantly improving the uh, the reliability of their installations and the accuracy of those. And you can imagine that just speeds up the deployment for them and and helps them in the long run. Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, if you're talking about hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of ports that even, uh, you know, a small rate of mistakes would have wide repercussions. Yeah, 1% on uh, on, on that box is still three ports that one is configured, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is strange when you think about it. Three ports isn't a lot, but, uh, you know, you think 1% doesn't sound like a bad defect rate until you're, you know, building data centers at scale. But there's also... Uh, I, I would more imagine that if I was building this type of thing, I'd be looking for failed SFP modules because especially in the early days, 128 SFPs in a switch, you're starting to lose the ability to track those just by gut feel. And you need to have something that looks at, are they failing? Are the power levels dropping? And so you want the flexibility to do more than just, you know, test for cabling. You want to be able to keep building on that as time goes by too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's the ongoing monitoring. And, you know, if you can do that and have derived statistics or or state uh, um, and health of a network element at the edge and know not necessarily having to collect, you know, reams and reams of data from every single port every single day forever, but only getting summarized information and notified when there's actually something that's deviating from what you were hoping, then that's actually, you know, a great use case case and one that we've also worked with customers on to build an agent for. Now you mentioned uh, four applic- or four agents that this customer built. What's the last one? <laughs> the last one's actually maybe the most interesting. They built an agent to manage their own agents. <laughs> so <laughs> they, took it, they took it to the next level. Uh, and it's a, it's a great example. They may want to change the, the, the Yang model or what information they are pushing in or even the, the version of those agents. And so they've actually built a little agent, which allows them to, to push information back and forth to the device using our standard APIs, but uh, in the form of another agent. Now, that's really interesting because almost at the start of the discussion, I was thinking one of the drawbacks of being able to build applications for your network OS is that somebody has to maintain those applications and keep an eye on them and stuff. And they are essentially using this capability to help them with that problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. And these, these agents can all be, you know, loaded on uh, at any time during the life cycle, including during the startup process of these uh, network elements, you can kind of build it in to the, the zero touch provisioning of these boxes. So although we can help you get them on there, there is still a life cycle management. We'll monitor those applications, you know, as we do our other applications in SR Linux. But, mm -hmm. you know, in this case, they took it to the next level to, to do version control and, you know, changes, et cetera. Well, this has been really interesting, John. Thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, if folks want to find out more about how they can get their hands on SR Linux and things they can do with it, where should they go? Yeah, thanks for the time today. They can go to https://learn.srlinux.dev. All right, that's learn.srlinux.dev. We'll have that and other links in the show notes. Uh, thank you, John, for being with us. And thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. Sponsors make everything we do here at Packet Pushers possible. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.